You got a problem, you don't know what to do Your dreams are strange, and you're seeing things too The world is full of mystery Life's more than you can see You can ask pomegranate You can ask pomegranate Hi, welcome to the podcast, mystics and psychics and witches and whoever else is out there listening. Uh, today we have a very exciting and special day with my uh, teacher, Pandora O'Mallory, also known as Anne Brennan. And uh, she has been my teacher for many, many years. And we are good friends. And today I invited her to come and speak about her practice as a life coach and a medieval professor of medieval literature and a teacher of magic mystery. And we'll be talking a lot about the idea of aventure. Pandora is out of the reclaiming tradition. She lived in San Francisco and is um, one of, I don't know if she's the founding member, but she's definitely at the very beginning, beginnings of the reclaiming collective, which then eventually became the reclaiming tradition of the craft. She's a priestess. She's a psychic. She's an intellectual. She's a professor retired now she's a life coach she's a um, mystic and she's a lover of the fairies and you can listen to a beautiful interview with her as well as find out more about her offerings because she does teach online and in person and over the phone and if you live in albuquerque new mexico you're in luck because you might be able to start studying with her one-on-one she is truly amazing one of the most interesting and amazing people i've ever met and i am proud to call her my teacher let's listen to the interview with pandora o'mallory welcome to the podcast pandora o'mallory slash hi honey Good to see you. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful to have you on the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I have like five million questions. I hope maybe this will be an extra long podcast. Um, so you are re- a retired professor of medieval literature. Yes. At you were retired from Duquesne University mm-hmm. of the Holy Spirit. You have to add that part in. Oh, Duquesne mm-hmm. University of the Holy Spirit. I'm raising my arms mm-hmm. up in praise and the. In the gesture of praise as I say that. <laughs> and now you live in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. What was that? What, what was the call for for Albuquerque? Well, I grew up here. And uh, I left Albuquerque uh, after I finished my BA. So that was in 1976. And that was for several reasons. One was that I had gotten into a doctoral program at Berkeley, although I didn't actually attend it for quite some time. And so I left for that. But the other was that I really needed to not live around my family for a while. But I really, I missed New Mexico every day of the nearly 40 years I was gone. So it was always my plan to to retire here. Now, I actually left work early. I got a nice deal. And my wife, who's like, who's 10 years younger, just simply left. She's now at law school at the University of New Mexico. And so, even though she's from not New, she's not from New Mexico. She's um, a Bostonian, but she loves it here. And so, we're home. So, we're making new mm. lives. And I'm back with my family. And, um, but I'm, I, <laughs> I have a lot of, uh, 
I have a lot more tools on my tool belt than I did when I left, and so um, that's much more comfortable for me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that's what it was. I came back home. We talk a lot about land spirits and the power of a land spirit in a magical person's life. Um, mm. It sounds like that place was always calling you back. Yeah, yeah. Like every single day. I've been here a year now. I got here uh, a year ago yesterday, actually. I'm driving for three days across the country. I was in charge of bringing the cats. We had three dogs, two cats, and two birds, and I was in charge of the cats and the birds. And then Laura followed a couple days later with the dogs, you know. Then we got everybody out here in the menagerie a year ago. And every single day I'm just so grateful to be here. The beautiful intensity of the skies and the sun and uh, we had rain, rain, rain yesterday. And it was like, when it rains, it's like rain. It's just always so interesting here. And uh, I can sit on my little balcony. I have a tiny little balcony outside my bedroom and I can sit and watch the sun come up over the sandias or I can sit and watch the sunsets. And Oh, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky to be home. (laughs) Plus, there's the food, which is awesome. I'm just saying. (laughs) And you've been practicing, I mean, you're my teacher, uh, and I've been practicing for a long time. You've been practicing magic for a really long time. Uh, 1981. Wow, okay. that That's, how long ago is that now, 34 years? I don't know, it's numbers. That has some numbers like in it. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know how you- when that is. How did you come to it? How did you come to practicing the craft? Well, I had wanted, all my life I had been very interested in um, studying witchcraft. But I don't know where I, I have no idea where I got this notion, but I was under the impression that you were not allowed, you couldn't just go find witchcraft. You had to wait till it came to you. So I was waiting until it came to me, you know, because, so I assume, and, and maybe someday I would be worthy or whatnot. So I was in Berkeley. <laughs> Uh, I was living in Berkeley, and uh, one night I was sitting around with my cat, uh, changing brains with my cat, because, you know, like one does, I guess. And um, anyway, my cat said, uh, my cat said, now you have to go study witchcraft. I'm like, well, okay. I mean, obviously, you know, but how one did that, I don't know. So the next day I went to, um, I was was doing some kind of exercises down at um, at the Y, so I went and I ran into the locker and I opened the locker and this flyer fell out. And you understand I was in Berkeley, but the flyer fell out and it was for um, witchcraft lessons, beginning witchcraft lessons in San Francisco. And so that was obviously a sign, you know, the cat told me to get to there's they are. And that and it turned out that that was the second round of um, classes being offered by um, the compost coven that Starhawk was in. And uh, so I had classes from Kevin, Kevin Lutton and, um, oh, damn, I can't remember her name. <laughs> a very wonderful woman that I love dearly, whose name I can't remember. But I had that, those classes and, um, and I had no idea what it was going to be like. But I remember that we, um, we, we got told about this tradition, this reclaiming tradition. I was really happy because it was a fairy tradition. I didn't understand that fairy is spelled F-E-R-I. I thought it was, you know, like fairies. And that was good because I was still continuing to talk to them. I had talked to them my entire life. I was still in connection with them, you know, so that was good. And it was Celtic and, you know, I got Celt in me and that was good, you know. And 
it was all very nice. And, you know, because nobody seemed like idiots, so they seemed real sane and, and it all was lovely. And and then, then there was a what point, it was the beginning, the first class, we lay down and um, in, in the circle with our heads in the middle of the circle, we were supposed to be practicing sending our energy down and energy up. And so we lay down and I sent my energy down to Lauren, that was her name, Lauren was was my our other teacher and she was um lying down next to me. So I sent boom, I sent my energy. I was so happy. Sending my energy boom, down to the center of the earth. And Lauren sat straight up and looked at me. And I knew I was home. Because wow. it meant that she actually knew what the hell she was doing. So I was fine. Mm. So that was nineteen eighty one and uh so I took this this series of three classes and we formed a little coven. Um it was the Windhags. Mm-hmm. And I was working in my little coven and at that time uh I was being very careful. I didn't know why, but it just seemed obvious to me that one didn't drink before one went to one's witchcraft classes or coven, although then you got to drink at what was called at that point cakes and wine, and so I would drink a lot at that point, but I wouldn't drink before this. But I was heading towards sobriety. It was the craft that got me into sobriety. Mm. And, and, you know, and eventually there was this moment <laughs> when the voice said to stop drinking, so I stopped drinking and still hasn't told me to start yet, so I didn't, but, you know, <laughs> I'm now no longer waiting for it. I haven't been waiting for the voice for about 30 years now, but, you know, for a while I thought, oh, well, you know, it'll just let me know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. so there was the witchcraft, and that was strongly tied into my sobriety. And, um, yeah. And, and you and, uh, practiced the steps as well as part of that, right? As part yeah, of your sobriety. Uh, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, and it's nice, I think, because at least for me, uh, I love my, I love this tradition. I just love it because it's so, um, it's so grounded in, uh, the movement of energy as it is and being in the moment with feeling how it is the energy is moving, how you yourself can move the energy with paying attention, paying attention, paying attention and still being active. And to ground it also in the 12 steps, which are just simply basically a very, sort of sound sort of method of, you know, taking responsibility for our own actions, knowing how to make amends, you know, being able to move on and not hold on to stuff forever and being able to help other people. It's really kind of, you know, basic. But it means that um, the ecstasy itself is grounded in this foundation of sanity. Mm -hmm. So for me, that works really, really well because I'm very committed to the idea that one can have sanity and ecstasy at the same time. I don't see mm. that they are antithetical. And in fact, um, they're not the same thing, but I think that they work together. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What was the question? I don't know. How did I get there? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it's good. Where, I mean, for, where were we? For me, that uh, combination of uh, magic and the 12 steps work really well together to braid a really grounded presence. I mean, that's one of the things I think I've learned from you is that ability to be very grounded. And I think those two things of sanity and Mm. ecstasy combined, those things are necessary for me. And um, Mm. to be, I don't want to be too so ecstatic that I am no longer grounded or present in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's what the 12 steps do for me. They keep me from being, ruining the past or having anxiety about the future. And they really bring me to center or Mm. like like you say, home, right? So... Mm. That I think is one of the big influences that you've had on me as a as a teacher.
You can ask pomegranate. You can ask pomegranate. She's a priestess. Would you define for me how you define witchcraft or magic? What, <laughs> how do you describe it? Why do you do it? Like, what's it about for you? What what is it? Um, you know, like, and what makes it different from regular life? Is it is it all different actually? I don't know really that it is. I think that for me, what um, magic and the craft are simply um, ways of being conscious about how it is that I am messing around in the world. Because uh, I think I think that we all do uh, magic anyway, but that if we're not conscious of it, it's kind of, it get, kind of gets out of hand. In fact, that's one of the reasons I think that it had been of concern to me to learn the craft because I knew that if I I knew that it was quite often that if I wanted things or I imagined things that came into my reality and I thought that I should take responsibility for that. I didn't, you know, that seemed, I didn't know whether it was something everybody does or just I do, but it seemed to me that it was something one wanted to take responsibility for. And I think that all of the humans on the planet influence to an enormously large extent the world around them and what it is that reality is. I don't think that we entirely create our own realities. I think that we create a great deal of it, but that we all imagine things together and that the forces beyond the world imagine things with us. And so we're, but we're, but we, but we're all responsible for a big piece of it. And the more conscious we are, the more responsibility we have. It's a, ends up like a feedback loop, really, now that I come to think of it. That's why we say in the craft, things come back to you, what we put out into the world comes back to us three times. I think that what we put out in the, into the world, all of the humans, it all comes back to us. If mm-hmm. we put it out with intention and um, energy and will, then it comes back to us m- more. I think, quite frankly, that in our tradition, um, in traditions that, or any shamanistic tradition, any tradition that's working that deeply with energy, I think it comes back more than three times. Mm-hmm. Which and that's another reason for having some kind of grounding program alongside the craft. It doesn't need to be the 12 steps. There's a lot of sanity available in the world. But um, it's very easy to get deceived as to exactly who we are and how important we are, mm. especially when we're having a large impact on the world around us. And so it's good to have any kind of anything that helps us have moments of humility. (laughs) (laughs) Humility is an awesome thing, you know. It's not about so much about being, it's not about being mortified. Uh, It's it's not about being humiliated. It's about seeing things as they are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Is that how you would, is that how you would define sanity? How would you define sanity? I define sanity, yes, so seeing things as they are, which can be small or large. It depends on how much one can take in. I think of all addiction as a kind of lack of perspective. Mm. You know? Mm. Yeah. And um, sanity is about seeing things as they are. I mean, I... I, I came. I came from a toxic little family. It was, you know, it was eccentric and interesting. But oh boy, was it toxic! None of us, none of us came out of there undamaged. Um, 
and that's but that is as it is. I I need to know that, and I need to be able to see how things work in it, which is very interesting. Being back home, let me tell you. <laughs> but I also need to see my place in it, and to see the ways in which I perpetrate it or do not perpetrate it. Mm. Where it is that I have, um, yeah, what it is that I have some semblance of control over, and what I do not. Mm. Where my impact lies. That's what sanity is. So one of the big um, influences or uh, is medieval literature in your life as a medievalist. Yes, and yes, it is very. <laughs> I'm really interested in the in the in the connection between literature, medieval literature specifically, and the craft. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that um, you taught me that's been a huge influence on my practice as a priestess is this idea of sacred drama that there could be magic in stories. Yeah, um, yeah. How how did you come to medieval, medieval literature? <laughs> when I was when I was working on my BA, uh, my dad um, was not going to pay for a degree in theater. Um, I was working in theater of the absurd. Uh, he was not going to pay for a degree in theater, but he would pay for a degree in English. And so I was doing a double major, English and theater, and that was great. And um. Because, so I had to take like, uh, I don't know, I took a Chaucer course. Of course, I think it was, I was a freshman, it was my second semester or something. And so I'd been do, been doing all this theater and, you know, doing the English, because I also read and write and stuff like that, and that was good. And I was in the Chaucer class, and the first day of the class, the professor came in, and he was talking about the language, about Middle English, and he also showed us where it came from. And so I he showed us the Anglo-Saxon, and that was it. So I dropped the theater, and I didn't look back. And I, I wasn't just an English major. I was a medievalist. So I took Latin. I took history. I took French. I, I did all these things to really ground myself in medieval medieval studies. The, <laughs> the Middle Ages are a... They are they are a completely alien place. I mean, they, they come to us, and they flow through us, and we're... You know, we're connected because, you know, they've helped put together the culture, the dominant culture that we live in, but they are an alien place. So it's easy, they're easy to misinterpret because we'll make connections that, that seem to be true but are not necessarily so. Anyway, that's how I became a medievalist. And so I dropped the theater at that point, although then when I was working on my doctorate, which was going to be in Anglo-Saxon, I ended up for various reasons focusing on later and ending up in medieval drama. So there I was back in the theater again. <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, and one of my uh, doctoral students helped put together the Duquesne Medieval and Renaissance Players. And so we were doing um, medieval and obscure Renaissance drama. So in other words, not Shakespeare and Marlowe, but, you know, oh, I don't mm -hmm. know. We did The Night of the Burning Pestle. That's a good one. <laughs> Which so seems like his pity she's a whore, but we never did. Anyway. <laughs> it's a pity she's a whore. Yeah. <laughs> well, see, I'm, I'm about to rewatch the Charlotte Rampling movie, and so I'm reminded of that. Anyway. <laughs> so it seems like these three things come together um, in your practice as a, a priestess, and then your practice as a medievalist, and your practice as a as an actress or a uh, person that's vested in drama. And we get out of that we get sacred drama. Yeah. Yeah. Now yeah, talk yeah. talk about 
talk about sacred drama. What what is sacred drama, and how do you do it? How is it done? Oh, how is it been done? Sacred. I think that. Well, I'm going to backtrack some. Okay. I think really, in some ways, you know, whenever we're doing some kind of ritual, and especially when we're doing it in collaboration, I mean, you can do it. We can do it on our own, but especially when we're working together, we are always creating sacred drama because we are dramatizing uh, these forces which are, lie outside of the um, the three-dimensional, the, the universe of space and time, but create the universe of space and time and become the universe of space and time and are the universe of space and time, but are larger than it. We are, every time we do a ritual, when we, when we are calling in the um, directions and the elements, when we are calling in the gods and goddesses, when we are having a little cauldron and sending our work and our lives into it to be transformed, that's actually sacred drama. Mm. And so we're performing it for each other. Whenever we're performing um, rituals of any kind, it doesn't have to be magic, this happens in the Catholic Church also, whenever we're performing rituals of any kind, I think we're performing sacred drama. If Mm. if you want to get into the intellectual realm of this, there's a great deal of theoretical discussion about where the lines in between ritual and uh, drama are, fair enough. But I think really for practical purposes, uh, sacred drama is when you are dramatizing the sacred. Fair mm. enough. And so the mm. larger you get that, um, the more you move into uh, audience and audience participation, and um, then there's the lovely difference uh, with, with street with street sacred drama where you kind of like, we did this um, a few times at witch camp, I remember, where people would, we were all like charged with just simply uh, creating our own little sacred dramas and springing them on people at any moment. (laughs) I love that because then what happens is you've got this moment where everything kind of stops and you're like both entertained, which is a darling thing and very sacred and reminded of some other sacred truth that whatever it is that's going on. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. I remember being a crone in the road occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) I remember going around and doing the Monty Python, uh, black death (laughs) line, whacking ourselves with books. Oh, the monks and the whacking of the head. The monks. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. From trying to get the curse from the what was it the curse of the medieval what was something to do with the curse of the plague on us and removing it yes from the that's right uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think people really appreciated it no um, no no I don't think they did I think they were a little worried about it <laughs> but it was still good to do well it's problematic for me that kind of uh, you know the Catholicism and uh, with the reclaiming tradition are not the same thing. But for me, they um that kind of like the little corridor, I wouldn't say the door in between them, but the corridor um in between them is easily easily uh traversed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're working uh, now is teaching online and mm-hmm. uh, you're working with some, some medieval stories and teaching about aventure. I am because I love aventure. So everything, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm liking to use aventure as a kind of way of looking at the world. 
And um, so shall we now have my short explanation of Aventure, what it is? Yes, please. That seems kind of useful, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, Aventure is a is the word in Middle English that comes, obviously it's from the French, but it comes down to us as adventure. But the difference, the reason I like to use the word Aventure specifically is that the medieval concept of it is different from our concept of adventure. Uh we can go on adventures because we decide we're going to. And so we could pay somebody enough money and and they would take us off to uh, you can to Mount Everest for instance. And mm-hmm. so that's an adventure. But the aventure part of that would have been the moment at which um somehow that door opened onto the possibility of going. That's the aventure. So that when aventure shows up in the in medieval literature, for instance, it's like it's the Holy Grail. It, the Holy Grail comes through. You're, there you are. You're eating your dinner. Uh, and the Holy Grail kind of wafts through the room being <laughs> held by unseen hands. And that's an aventure. We don't have control over when the aventures show up or how it is they show up. We have control over whether we notice them and we have control over whether we take them. Uh, Falling in love is an aventure. You know, mm-hmm. it happens. And um, it's, it's hard to walk away from it, but it can be done. Mm-hmm. And so, for instance, um, the cat telling me to learn witchcraft, that's an aventure. Mm-hmm. The voice telling me to stop drinking, that's an aventure. <laughs> the letter in the mail that I got from my university, uh offering me a monetary uh, deal that allowed me to be able to walk out and come to New Mexico, that was an aventure. I didn't have to take it. I did. And Mm. it wasn't easy. It's not like you take aventure and then things are easy or even, and then they turn out great. They don't necessarily, you know, it's just a Mm. door. It isn't like a door onto a wondrous place. It's a door onto another place and the doors themselves are come from the other world some other world some other place how did you know uh how could you identify those moments as in the, when you know because you took each one of those how did you yes and i tend it? to mm-hmm. yeah yeah you do tend to because the stories uh life stories laced with those moments that you actually went how did you know it was that how did you know to listen to the cat how did you, I mean, you know, because my I cat- just always have. So for me, that's like, that's just, that's just how it is. I never, I, I've always, that, that kind of, that connection to something that's going to tell me stuff, it's just always been there. And I've never distrusted it. Uh, and it's never told me stupid things. I mean, you know, I did not think it was a good idea to stop drinking, but I did, whatever, you know, things. <laughs> But I did. But what I teach is a method of paying attention so that um, I can kind of pass that on. Yeah. Because um, it seems like you could miss that or misinterpret it. Oh, and I'm sure I do. You know, my feeling about it now is that there's some really big aventures. Like the Holy Grail type aventure is really, really big. You know, it's hard to miss. The Holy Grail. I'm just saying. You know, it's hard to miss it when you get a letter that says, hey, you know, here's a monetary deal, which is really enormously good. Would you like to leave the place you want to leave and go to the place you want to go to? I mean, that's pretty obvious. 
Um, that's, so some things are just very clear. But I've now come to believe that there's really no... The universe is, of course, built by infinity and lives within infinity and is connected in every aspect of itself to infinity. And so, therefore, there is never moment, any moment at which there is not an opportunity. Mm. But that's overwhelming and makes you nuts. And so you don't necessarily want to catch everything, you know. It's, it's kind of good. that you, you want to be able to open up and see things. And you also want to ready yourself to be able to catch what it is that's coming through. But it's, oh, it's actually okay that we don't catch everything because anything we really need comes back around in some way. Mm. It's so not in your life and another one. There's, so if you miss it, it'll show up again. That moment will show up. Someday, maybe not this life. You know, we maybe don't get, we don't necessarily in each life get infinite number of chances to do things, but we, we have, we have a very, very large existence. And so everything that we want to experience, that we need to experience, there's a place where that will happen or that we can choose it. How can you make yourself ready to notice those high points? Because what you're talking about is the high, shiny, like, yeah, this is a definitive moment in your life. Um, you said opening to the moment of going, you know, when the mm-hmm. cat when the flyer fell out of the box. Um, those, how can you prepare yourself to recognize that? I think really the main thing is believing that they happen. Mm. So when I'm doing, in my little class, I have classes on this. Who knew? Uh, but yeah. for instance, in my class, um, the first thing that we've got is a, is a meditation on remembering the aventures we've already had. Because over the course of your life, oh, my love, um, you will have had, if you were to sit and think about it, you will have had a score of giant aventures that came and you took them. Mm-hmm. The easiest to remember are the times you fell in love. Mm. But then you can also remember the times that you that there was a phone call you got that you had not expected. And there was a choice that you could make about whether to go someplace or not. There will be the times that you decided to move away from where you were or that you didn't. There will be the times when you thought of, you know, there were... There was a place you knew that was where you should go to school and not, not to, that you were going to go to one place to school and not to another place. Mm-hmm. There were going to be the trips that you took. Um, and often when we're traveling, it becomes very, very obvious. I remember um, once, what was I doing? I do not remember why I had to get from London to Paris, but I did for some reason. I guess who knows what it was. And um, there was a, an IRA, this was quite some time ago, and the IRA had a bomb threat, and so the, the, the boat wouldn't sail, you know, obviously, you know, put your little tourist on the boat there. And so I, I was stuck, and um, I had, and there was another girl with me, she was just sitting, we were just, you know, just sitting next to me, and she was from Hong Kong, also stuck. And between us, we were able to... So we talked to each other in between us. We were able to put together a plan for we finally got to Paris, you know, for how it was we were going to afford because one of us had credit and one of us had cash, but neither one of us had 
the the amount we needed, we were able to pool our resources and take care of each other, and actually even have a place to stay in Paris, which happened to be a hotel across from the closed train station. It was like none mm. of this should have worked, but we were both okay, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was that's that was all on tour. And did I have to talk to the girl next to me? No. Did I have to have to take a chance? Did she have to take a chance of like? throwing in her lot with a person she'd never met. No. But we were okay. We got it. She got home, I got home. And uh you you t- you this is a you have an entire course on this online. Yeah, I have an aventure course online, but then what I'm doing with I've I've got a whole I'm putting together a whole year of courses when we're kind of like in the middle of it at the moment. But uh, and if anybody ever actually finishes the whole year, I'm going to have to figure out some kind of prize because it's way <laughs> too intense, I think, to actually go. Because if you took everything, you would be every week, almost every week of, I think you get a few weeks off, not much, but almost every week of the whole year having a little, having a lesson with me where you're having like a guided meditation and you've got homework and you have contact with me and we were right back and forth and you're just like, and, Every week there's some medieval literature, which I read because I just, I don't know, the voice told me to read medieval literature. <laughs> oh, yeah. Anyway, having that, I don't know, it just happens. Um, but there's this whole series of classes, so an elements, elements of magic class, an iron pinnacle, and a pearl pinnacle, but also um, a class on time as an element, and a class on um, the tarot, focusing on the fool, as the aventure, the fool's journey as an aventure. And each one of them starts out, the, they're six, they're, they all last about six weeks, sometimes seven, and each one starts out, the first week is simply going back over aventure. So I've got a whole aventure class that's sort of intense on uh, learning about aventure, but all of the other classes... For the first week, we kind of re-remember Aventure and think mm. about it uh, in the new piece of the season, so mm. that because it, cause it's you need reminding of these things all the time, you know, mm. because you can get so wrapped up in the mundane world mm. that yeah. you forget that actually the entire existence is an Aventure. That yes. the birth itself yes. is the first one that happens, you know. Yeah. You, can, you were born. Yeah, I, I think, that, and I think I was just thinking that one of the things I like best about my whole little, you know, shtick of aventure is that it leads to, it, it's, it's, it's a very kind of trusting way of looking at the, at the world, you know, that, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in my, um, in my beautiful little office I love so much looking out on my courtyard, you know, in my little, um, gate and um, I use gate imagery and door imagery a lot as to aventure. You open it up, there it is. And later I'll go on out and drive around. <laughs> I had a wonderful aventure yesterday, which was a flat tire. Oh yay! But anyway, <laughs> so I'll go get my tire fixed, and um, and it means that instead of focusing on how annoying it is to have a flat tire, which it really, really was, or how I don't want to spend the money on the tires, which I really, really don't that I can assume that just the act of going on down to my little garage and getting the tires changed is in some way likely to lead to something else, which I don't necessarily, I won't necessarily know what it is today. Sometimes Mm -hmm. these things just kind of build on each other, but it gives me a way of um, being very comfortable in my life and really trusting it. Mm -hmm. All of these things 
they lead they lead to something else in this giant narrative. I think we started out earlier in the conversation kind of talking about story. And that's mm-hmm. the thing about Aventura, as I say. It's, it's a kind of mindfulness, but it's, it's not necessarily a mindfulness that leads to complete calm because sometimes, you know, the Aventures are not fun. Um, death is a death is the big aventure, you understand. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and many people are not interested in that, but there you go. <laughs> and yet they will go on such an adventure. Oh, yeah, it's going to happen. I, you know, <laughs> history tells us. Um, well, let's it, just take it. Gonna... There's a story to tell. There's always a story to tell. And I must say that at least you know this this makes me very happy. There's always a story. Let's take a little break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about stories. Well, you heard it straight from Pomegranate herself. She's glad she had the opportunity to learn from Anne Brannan, a.k.a. Pandora O'Mallory. Well, you can too. Pandora teaches classes to people all over the world on the elements of magic, the iron and pearl pentacles. She even offers a class all about the shamanic tools of magic, for dissertation writers. And if you feel you could use some guidance in your life around how to reach your goals and how to uncover your unique strengths and talents, Pandora is available for one-on-one life coaching sessions. All of this information is on her website, annbrannan.com. That's A-N-N-E-B-R-A-N-N-E-N.com. You can ask pomegranate You can ask Pomegranate. She's a priestess. So we're back with uh, Pandora O'Mallory, also known as Ann Brannan, uh, teacher, priestess, mystic, psychic, you name it. She's got it going on. Medievalist. (laughs) I cook. I also cook. You should say that. That's so true. (laughs) I'll never forget the paella you made one time for me. Yeah, I made a paella for you. I never had paella before. (laughs) made it from scratch right in front of my eyeballs, um, including peeling the tomatoes with hot water. I was so impressed. Um, okay. <laughs> that that was a, that was something I opened to in the moment. <laughs> it was delicious. Yeah. Now I'm hungry for paella. Yeah. You'll cook it after. I won't cook it after this, but maybe you will. Um, okay. So what I want to just talk to you about was, so what story do you feel like um, really holds that aventure uh, story in it, the energy of the aventure, the magical journey, because that's what we're talking about. You know, the, that's, the mo- that's really what you yeah. The mm-hmm. moment, all happens. of life, mm-hmm. all of life is a magical journey. It's what you were talking about. It's like, well, what is sacred drama? Well, all ritual is sacred drama. All of life is a magical journey, if indeed that is what one mind is on. Mm. So, what stories are you working with that you particularly drawn to in this? Illustrate there. I, I, uh, there's a lot of medieval stories that illustrate aventure, and they say so because that's the word that they're using. But the iconic story that um, most of us are are familiar with, that kind of runs around in our culture in different uh, different aspects of it, is the Holy Grail story. And I love it as an example of how aventure works because it just seems so clear to me in its little level. So as I was, I was saying, you know, the Holy Grail, the, the, the Knights of the Round Table are sitting around and the Holy Grail walks through. Everybody recognizes immediately that it is a holy thing and it means something. And what happens then is that 
all of the knights vow that they're going to go find the Holy Grail. So, fair enough. In other words, they take, they see an aventure, they notice it, they recognize it as an aventure, and they decide to take it. Arthur doesn't, so he decides not to. Fine, fine. But everybody else, pretty much, they're all going to go um, find the Holy Grail. And so mm. they take the aventure. But what happens is that they all have different stories. So they go out on the aventure looking for the Holy Grail. And, um, and you know, there's many, many different versions of this story. I'm consolidating a whole bunch of them. Mm-hmm. And different things happen to each night. And so they run into aventures on the way, you know, as we do in life, don't we just, you know, like all these little mini aventures and things happen. And Lancelot, for instance, never finds the Holy Grail. He never sees the Holy Grail. And it's very clear to him that the reason, he, you know, that there's reasons he doesn't see the Holy Grail. And, and let's say it's because his adultery, blah, blah, blah. So, but... He's had an aventure nonetheless. It isn't successful in that he, because he hasn't found or reached the Holy Grail, but it's an aventure. It's a story. And the story is actually, in my mind, the point. Mm. So the fact that he doesn't get to the Grail, the story of failing to get to the Grail, is that's where the aventure has led him. And then there's... Um, Galahad, Galahad not only fights the Holy Grail, but actually gets to go to heaven with it. I mean, so he wins. Yay! <laughs> Galahad, he's all pure and everything, you know, he's a total winner. That's nice. Uh, so that is one outcome. One outcome of the Aventure is actually getting the Aventure. It's actually the most boring of the Aventure. <laughs> mm. <laughs> that's great, Galahad. That's nice. Bye. So he's in heaven with the Holy Grail. That's very lovely. My favorite is Percival, mm-hmm. who See, so he, he actually gets to Holy Grail. Da, 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 he sees the Holy Grail. Da, da, da. But he's so polite because he's been taught so much etiquette. This is a problem. We should all take this very seriously. He's been taught so much etiquette that he, do, he, he doesn't ask any questions because he thinks it's impolite to say anything. And because he does not ask any questions, he doesn't. He doesn't ask the thing which must be asked in order to actually come. He doesn't say, okay, no, I'm going to tell you what it is you have to say if you see the Holy Grail, okay? I want you to write this down. I actually had this as my screensaver for a long time so that if I see the Holy Grail, I do not forget to ask the question. And the question is, whom does the Grail serve? Mm. Percival doesn't. Percival does not ask that question, and so the Fisher King doesn't get healed, and Percival doesn't get to. I mean, he may have gone to heaven later. I don't know, but he doesn't get to go to heaven with the Grail. He's you know hang out with cousin Galahad. It's too bad. Mm. I like that story best. Mm. And so, if you're thinking about narrative, as I kind of do, sort of my job, if you're thinking about your life as a narrative, what exactly is the best story? The one that has no problems in it? I don't think so. Mm. That's the none of us want that. This is why it's a problem when you're writing stories, you know. Like, you know, if you're you have to have courage. You gotta be able to kill people off. You gotta be able to give them horrible problems. Or otherwise the stories are not very interesting. And frankly, that's true for us too. We mm. want oh we want to we want some comfort. We want to know where our paychecks are coming from. We would really, really like to know if we're getting to eat, you know, and take care of our kids. And that is those are all sane and good things to work for. 
But the fact of the matter is we will have some problems. And in, and how it is that we take those into our life, I, 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 think it, I think it's very helpful to think of them as narrative, as stories. Mm. It's perspective. Mm. It's yet another perspective. That does not mean that we should therefore all go be drug addicts and have, you know, <laughs> we don't have to be the worst stories that there are, but, you know, it could give us some charity for the people who are living the really bad stories, you know. And also, our past, it seems like there's a way in which to reconcile our past with this idea as well. Yes, 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 yes. And not just the things that were uncomfortable for us, the ways in which we have betrayed other people, that is, that's one of the way, that's one of the useful things for the 12 steps, the, the, that's, and the, and the probe, the, the ideas that are like, uh, the ideas that come through the 12 steps, they're like, yes. I used to say to my students, unless you are a psychopath, you are going to break your heart. Mm. You will not be able to be, to, to follow all your own rules. You will not be able to live up to your own ideals. You are going to do things you are deeply sorry for. Mm. And we know this because we've met the humans and we've read history. You know, there's going to be <laughs> affairs. There's going to be um, betrayals. There's going to be addiction. There's going to be just sheer horrible bad behavior, um, you know. Mm-hmm. And and we have to find a way of living with that and moving on from it and learning learning from it and moving on from it, no matter who it is that's doing it. Us or other people. But well, that sometimes brings... it's going to be us. We are not going to be able to get to our graves having behaved every single minute of our lives. Nor would we want to. I don't know. I, see, I, this way, I would love to, actually. I would, I, I would love to be able to not ever mess up. I really would, but it's not happening, <laughs> I'm telling you. Um, it didn't happen already already there's been some messing up so when you're in those situations where you've screwed up or your life is a mess or you're just confused um, I work as a pastoral counselor as a priestess and I have a practice helping people with that you're Mm. actually an official life coach trained and do I have a search I have a certificate certificate and everything I have not I have a bachelor of fine arts and that's how I justify my work (laughs) Um, oh yeah, and thirty years as a priestess. Um, well, there you go. So, um, so that's a that's a thing you offer as well. You do life coaching with people when they're in those predicaments. What's that? What's how's that work for you? Magic? Like as a as a priestess, how is that to be a life coach? And what's it like to work with people? Yeah, it's yeah. I like that question as a priestess. Um, life coaching isn't priestessing. Um, but I am a priestess, and so that informs my life coaching. And so often when I'm, when I'm working, um, I love life coaching because I love working one-on-one, and it, it's, it's really intense. Uh, it tends, I have not, I don't, I have heard, I don't know, there's some myth out there. You know, there's people who are like, you know, have like long-term clients, you know, as I don't know. I never have had long-term clients. I have, There'll be a goal that we're working on, and we're working on it, and we do it, you know, within a few months, you know, that's, or a few weeks even, it depends on what's going on. Uh, that'll be, we'll be at a place where really my client is kind of moving on. But often people come back, so I'll see people over and over. And I love it, that kind of one-on-one work. Uh, and life coaching is very, very much about, um, Providing 
a kind of sounding board so that um, your clients can figure out how to their own ways of dealing with their issues, uh, which I like very much. It's very empowering. It's, it assumes that the client has the answers uh, and simply, you know, kind of needs to uncover them and just little, you know, there's little ways to help them get there. I also, but I, you know, I also can offer all kinds of tools, you know, some of which are actually directly out of the craft and some of which are actually <laughs> directly out of trust at work, quite frankly. And I'll say, you know, I have I have a um I have a tool that might work here. Are you interested in? You know, it's all hand on tools. So all of all of what I know, all of what I've learned, all of what I practice is what I bring to my coaching. That seems only fair, you know. That seems only fair. And uh so yeah, that's how it is. It informs it really. So it's not the same thing as priestessing. Uh, although I, I certainly could if it if I was I was called on for it. It's a different kind of thing. Hmm. And priestessing. I mean, how would you describe that work? One on one priestessing. Well, I mean. when when people call up or come to me and they're needing priestessing, then in that case, I tend to be more directive. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because the assumption there is that. The information is coming not just from the people I'm working with, but also from outside. And it has happened, actually, um, when I've been in – it has happened only just once. But it, it – for instance, it, here, here's my here's, here's my phrases. When I am priestessing, when I'm working with someone um, who's one of my apprentices or I'm working with another witch and they've come to me and they've got stuff going on and I'm not – and I'm not actually doing – um, life coaching per se, I am more likely to open the little door in my head where the things that live on the other side of my head come through and say stuff. <laughs> so in other words, I'm more likely to channel if I am priestessing and not mm-hmm. if I am life coaching. Mm-hmm. Although uh, if I'm working with a client who's open to that, I will say, I got somebody on the other side here. Do you want to hear what it is they have to say? Mm-hmm. Does that um, make sense? Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. And and um, how did you know? When how old were you when you knew there were voices on the other side of your head? How, what did you just you asked me how, how old, old were, how old were you? Like when did you know that you were hearing voices and that that was fine? Uh, I never, I never didn't know it wasn't fine, uh, and it comes in different kinds of forms. There was a point at which I learned I shouldn't. I didn't talk about it to other people, and that happened fairly young. Um, like by the time I was five, certainly, because it was clear that other people didn't really know what I was talking about. But I never thought of it as something that had anything wrong with it. It was just something something I thought. My, and what's weird about my family is that my family, well, one of the many things weird about my family, so my family, um, you know, theoretically couldn't hear me, and I'm very weird in my family. I have since found out that my father remembers past lives and also hears stuff. But, you know... <laughs> This is like a thing which never happened. I mean, where could this have come from? We have no idea. 
Surely not from the Irish. Oh, no. <laughs> Just ridiculous. At any rate, I had no, um, it, that actually, that actually really angered me when I found that out because I thought, you know, I could have used some support instead mm-hmm. of, you know, everybody pretending nothing was going on. It was just mm-hmm. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there were dead things around. I mean, obviously. You know, our dog died and then she lay in the hall. I mean, I knew this. The puppy knew this, wouldn't go over there. You know, why won't the puppy walk down the hall? Because the dog's laying in it. She's <laughs> the alpha, even if she's dead. I mean, there's some things which are just true. But, you know, no. How did you how did you cope with it? How did you cope with it until you started until that day you found the craft? Um obviously you I, I I actually can't really answer the question because it wasn't matter of a matter of coping with it. It was just simply who I was. And it was the thing I most trusted about myself. Oh. Uh I um I loved to go to churches, any church whatsoever. I didn't care. Uh because I've been told that's where God lived, although it was pretty clear that that wasn't true since God was also kind of like hanging out, you know, in everywhere. <laughs> but I liked it. It was the special place that people went to talk to God, which I enjoyed. And I just, it was, it was just always very, very clear. I remembered cast lies. It was just, it, it, it wasn't a thing that I questioned. It was just simply who I was. Hmm. That's wonderful. The fairies, the fairies. Um, there was a bush. The fairies like to live under one of the particular bushes out in the back when I when we were living in Austin. So I made them little houses. That was nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I wanted to tell you that when I um, first read the Spiral Dance, I think it just came out. I was like twenty one or something, and and the front of the book panel said. Spiral dance, a practice of fairy magic, and it was F E A R Y. And then I was like, "Oh, oh great. yeah, I will study fairies. this. Will, this will be wonderful. I will study this book, and I will find the people who behind it, and I will find these people, and we will become friends, and this will That's happen." That's right. And yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Next, All right. So, so you years, too. Years later, I opened the book, and, <laughs> and there was no such. And I'm like, "Well, it must have been the first issue." And I went back, found that no, they never said that ever. No, no, no. And what I had heard didn't exist, but, you know. And I was so stunned when I discovered that actually most of the people in my tradition do not actually see the fairies. I'm like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but I knew that that I was supposed to study fairy magic. This is what I knew. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that's why I followed that. So you interpreted it as best you could. Yeah. And then then it turned out it was something else. But that was okay, because the fairies themselves don't actually mind fairy magic. No, they don't. They don't, actually. F-E-R-I. I know we always have to spell. My problem is I'm dyslexic, so I can't spell. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The, like the fairies don't spell either. <laughs> <laughs> they got no spelling. They are they are not down with spelling. That explains that. <laughs> mm, yeah, they, they, the writing system of the fairies, no. Mm. Um. No. You know, as, as a person who's been in the mundane world, if there is such a thing as the mundane world, and in the magical world, and been, you know, equally in both, I've seen you do that. Um, how would you, I don't know if you'll be able to answer this question, but can you give advice to people on how to live a magical life inside a mundane world? Is that possible? So we're kind of like talking about how was I a professor? Yeah. How are you mm-hmm. a professor? Mm-hmm. And 
at a Catholic college. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, one the way I I I think that one of the tool that worked for me was translation. Uh, so so what do I so what do I mean by that? So there were some things that I was really really very uh, overt about. Everybody knew that I had been in San Francisco and had been practicing uh, nonviolent civil disobedience, and so I knew a whole lot of stuff about. Um, I knew a lot of things about like how to you know be a tree in a meeting and you know do the energy and stuff like that. Okay, so mm-hmm. <laughs> so they all knew about that, and God knows they knew I was eccentric because that was just how that was which apparently many people interpreted as that's what Texas women are like, but I'm okay, let's just leave that there and like, okay, whatever. You know, because people figure things out in their head. Ah, she's a Texan. Not so much, but there you go. And um, I also, I really, I, everybody knew I had new like little meditation techniques and everything, you know, so, so I, a lot of what I do in, the tools that I use in lifecraft, they're the sa- life coaching. They're the same things that I used when I was talking to students in my, in, you know, in, in my office hours. You know, like trying to help them figure out whether or not they wanted to go to law school. You know, how I, the same kinds of tools I would use there. But I also was really able to talk about. Um, it was clear that I could talk about um, the medieval. I, I could talk about the Middle Ages in terms of um, in terms of the Catholicism and I'm I'm just able to the, the, to me there's just not that much of there's there's no difference between what I do and what Julian of Norwich does except that she when when those forces outside of ourselves come through her because she's a medieval Christian she sees them in terms of medieval Christianity. And I'm not, so I don't. I see them in terms of this world that I've, this culture and this world that I've been brought up in, all that I can glean. I have my own belief system. And we have to have a belief system. We can't, we we have direct access to the forces that are out there beyond us, but we can't bring them through unless we translate them in some way. Mm. And they get translated through the languages that we know. So that's what Julian is doing. You know, that's why she, when she sees visions, she sees Jesus in the crown of thorns, and I don't. But I get what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some of what, so I guess my advice about um, being um, a mystic and being a witch and uh, finding oneself in places where those things are not necessarily understood is that, you know, wherever it is that we are, there's some way in which we can bridge it. Oh, actually, I don't know if that's entirely true. Maybe there's some things we can't bridge. But if we really can't bridge them, then I don't know what we're doing there. Mm. Hmm. And and how would you... um, There's a lot of uh, responsibility in the power of being a mystic, um, I mean, I think in being an intellectual, there's a lot of power. There's a lot of power in being a mystic. There's a lot of power in being a psychic. Um, 
and there, which means that there's a lot of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, which is part, you know, partly how we manage to get ourselves into trouble, right? Yes. It's not, not, mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. understanding the amount of responsibility that comes with that power or not understanding your power and therefore not taking responsibility for it. Yes, both those things. Um, and I think that a lot of dilemmas occur because people are in the craft or they're in practicing magic with a license or without a license is the way I like to say it. Um, and, <laughs> you know, when someone's doing witchcraft without a license, I'm like, oh, you know, it's what it means is they haven't taken responsibility for the power they're using. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. would you say is the best way to, or what ways do you know, or what tricks do you have for taking, recognizing your power or taking responsibility for your power or not dismissing who you are and what you can do? I think that um, it's crucial to listen to what other people are saying about how it is that I am impacting them. At the same time, remembering that their truth is not necessarily my truth, but I need to hear how it is I'm impacting people. I need to take other people's opinions into account. In the same way, for instance, that uh, as an intellectual, I have my student surveys. I need to know what it is that my students think is working for them or not working for them, even though I know that I'm the person who is essentially, I mean, it's fundamentally in charge of how it is that the material is being presented and worked with, and that my way of thinking is not necessarily theirs. So I need to listen, and I need to be able to balance, and I need to be ready to say, ha, okay, I did that wrong, or I made a mistake, or, okay, I could tweak that and make that a little bit better, and I need to be able to say, I screwed up. Mm. I need to be willing to change, and I'm going to be better at that some days than I am others. It's not, (laughs) you know, because that has a lot to do with um, trusting the world, again, trusting that the um, that the aventures and the stories are worth living, mm. and trusting that all of this is in the service of something that is actually worth working for. You know, trusting that the forces of the universe are not screwing me around, that if the voice tells me something, uh, since my voice is not uh, an insane voice, if the voices are telling me something that it's worth listening to, it's not just a joke, mm. but that I need to be able to change and move on. And I also need to be able to say, ah, that's their stuff and not mine. I'm reminded, for instance, of a student evaluation once where um, it was in a class. It was always in one of those British lit survey classes, you know, where you're like, a thousand years of British literature, and you go from Beowulf to, you know, elegy in a country churchyard, and by God, I hit it all, you know. And somebody was um, complaining on this on this student evaluation because we had to read too much old literature. Now, that is 
a legitimate thing to be annoyed about, but it doesn't have anything to do with my reality. You know, I'm sorry, if you <laughs> sign up for a survey of Brit Lit 1, what you get is a thousand years of old literature. <laughs> and so, therefore, if you don't want that, you should sign up for Brit Lit 2 or, I don't know, algebra, but whatever. <laughs> you know? So, yes. yes. They do sign up for it is the question. It's a magical yeah, question yeah. to ask yourself, did I sign up for this? Did I did I sign up for this, and who do I think I am? <laughs> yeah, and so it's always a kind of, like, it's always a matter of balance. Here's the deal, though. I'm not going to get it right all the time. That has to be okay. It has to be okay, because otherwise it can be paralyzing. How can I use my power? I will cause horrible problems. Yeah. You're going to cause some horrible problems, you know, like life. Because if you met the humans, they are just so badly behaved. <laughs> and sometimes they're us, as I say. So it can be paralyzing trying to figure out how to do things right. And I have had many magical students ask me this, you know, what can I do? I don't want to cause, I don't ever want to cause anybody any harm. I want, it was like, you know, you're going to screw up. So mm-hmm. then you make amends. And you make amends. Sometimes you can make direct amends. You can say, I'm sorry, how can I make this up to you? Sometimes you cannot make amends to whoever it is that you actually screwed over. So you make amends by not doing that thing again, you know, by changing. But it's all a matter of being willing to shift, being willing to change. For more podcasts and special offers, visit my website at askpomegranate.com. Well, you heard it straight from Pomegranate herself. She's glad she had the opportunity to learn from Anne Brannan, a.k.a. Pandora O'Mallory. Well, you can too. Pandora teaches classes to people all over the world on the elements of magic, the iron and pearl pentacles. She even offers a class all about the shamanic tools of magic for dissertation writers. And if you feel you could use some guidance in your life around how to reach your goals and how to uncover your unique strengths and talents, Pandora is available for one-on-one life coaching sessions. All of this information is on her website, annbrannon.com. That's A-N-N-E-B-R-A-N-N-E-N.com. Well, this begs the question from me. Um, because I don't want to be Percy. And we're talking about the mysterious realm. You don't want to be Percival? <laughs> I don't want to be Percival. Or Percy. I'm thinking of Percy from Thomas the Train. Uh, but I meant Percival. Oh, okay. <laughs> I got confused because my grand person. Um, so, Mike, my, my, I don't want to be Percival, so I want to ask you the question, because we're talking about, you know, these, what's motivating us and this, these chances and these, to go on an adventure, we're talking about the mysterious realms, we're talking about magic, and my question is, who does the magic serve? Who does the grail serve? Mm. <laughs> who does the adventure serve? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, the, there's actually an answer to that in the grail quest, which is that the grail serves the grail king. Ah. And so, my dear love, the aventure serves she who is on the aventure and that which sends the aventure. Mm. Because the Grail King, you know, is several different levels. Mm. Both, yes. 
And so the aventure, the magic, serves um, whoever it is that is working it in this reality, and it serves the person or the people that they are working it for, and it serves the forces that they bring through to work it. Well, I good okay. question. Thank you good for that question, Vidita. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I can't leave this conversation without asking you about fairy. Are you willing to talk a little bit about fairy? Sure. Are, I can talk about fairy. Are we talking about the fairies or are we talking about fairy? We're talking about the fairies. The fairy oh, people. Okay, yeah, the the They're yeah. easy. They're yeah. so easy. Not FERI. We're not going to get into that conversation. We'll get into this conversation. We could have that conversation, actually. We, but we you know, could. Maybe, might... we'll, maybe we'll do that next time we talk. No, no, I don't Fair know. enough. I don't have much to say about it because I don't know that much. But um, you, you probably do. But let's talk about the fairies since we brought it up several times and both of us have been on different adventures based on because of that. Um, and that's part of our relationship. What, what would you – just tell us what do you mean when you say fairies? Hmm. Okay. Hold on because I'm going to um... – I have to open the little door. Oh, there are uh, in this particular this particular world, the space and time world, which is just it's a brilliant invention. This whole space and time business thing. So you're going around. Things are very solid. This is all, of course, like not true, you know, because there's way more space than there actually. There's way more emptiness in space than there actually is matter. But okay, fine, whatever. It all looks very solid, as we know, if we fall down and whack our head on rock. And there's this time thing, and you know, so it keeps everything from happening all at once, is what Einstein says. So there you are. Um, but it's it's a it's a thing which has been formed out of infinity and is a very useful um, training tool and lovely place to be, um, and it's very good. But it's not the only thing that there is. There are many, many different realms, and one of the closest is whatever it is that we call fairy, which gets envisioned in different ways by different people it's it's always, you know, because they're not actually living in space and time. And so, therefore, when we envision them, we just as Julian sees, you know, the crown of thorns, when we envision the fairies, we we bring them through or we see them come through as makes sense to us. And so they have different kinds of um, aspects depending on what it is that we think we are dealing with. But when we kind of step on through and go there, it's uh, it's, you know, it's we don't actually take our bodies with us. But when we go there, we are beyond the realms of time and space as we know it, and dealing with creatures who, nevertheless, are quite connected to this particular reality. Uh, we say through the natural world, it's kind of like. They're not, they don't invent things the way the humans do, um, although they just love that in us, and they're willing to use our stuff. They love the stuff. And they're able to, you know, so that's quite and very useful. So they're able to work with this space and time dimension, although they aren't actually part of it, but they work with it very differently than we do because what we've done is we've gone, we are space and time. Space and time is me. Look, I have a body and I got born and then I'm going to die. You know, it's like, so it's a very space and time kind of consciousness and they've got 
a different thing going on. Mm. And so we're very useful to each other because we have a great deal to teach each other. Um, and we're very related in many ways because we we conceive of ourselves in much the same way in terms of shape and um, movement and function, but we are created out of different substances. There's mm. is not space and time. I'm not, I don't know quite how it is they put themselves together. But they're most comfortable in the natural world, and so that's where they tend to show up. Mm. But they're not bound to it. We tend to make a lot of rules about it. They don't like iron, and <laughs> they live in trees. Well, some of them don't like iron, and some of them live in trees, just as, I don't know, some of us live in Norway, and <laughs> some of us are from Bermuda. You know, I mean... <laughs> just ridiculous because well, the fairies and or like they're this big no they aren't <laughs> no they aren't they're a different kind of thing altogether <laughs> but they are um but they're especially attracted to music which um makes a great deal of sense to them i think that you know in the in the middle ages one of the things that people talked about that the the whole universe is created out of music i think that that's kind of like the connection that the fairies have. It's like, you know, that, that that's how they conceive of how things are made. So they like the music, therefore the dancing business. And you can see music as it moves through plants. That's really easy. Well, birds, duh. You know, but they really like the plants. Um, yeah, because the mm-hmm. plants are also made out of music. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of clearly to them, there's this, because music is mathematics. Okay, sorry, I was gone for a little bit. I hope that made sense. I mean, um, beautiful sense. Yeah, there was something about the fractals. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were telling me something about the fractals. Yeah, so the series actually, mathematics is is one of the things that they understand, although they don't speak it the way we do. They kind of like are it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they also, here's another thing they love, narrative. They totally get narrative. Mm-hmm. And love. They totally get love, although they think of it differently than we do. They don't have the rules that we tend to create. They're much more fluid. Yeah, they're not the enemies of humans. They, as we do, like when we can actually bridge that, they love that as we do. Well, there's nothing quite as special as listening to Pandora talk about the fairies, everybody. I hope you really enjoyed that because that was extremely wonderful. And um, should someone be wise and do as I did and decide to study with you, how can they find you? Where are you on the way? So physically, in terms of space and time, I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, the, one of the beloved inventions that we now have because we, we just, we just don't stop. So we have this thing called the internet. <laughs> like, oh my god. So I can be found on the internet at annbrannon.com. And, uh, so my classes are there. You can sign up for classes. You can through there on, there's a contact me tab and you can contact me and send me messages or sign up for a half hour just to talk with me to see if we want to work together in some way, if you want to take one of the classes, or maybe if there's something you're working on that you want some coaching on. <laughs> um, I've had lovely, uh, I just love the kind of things that people come to me for, like I have a, someone wanted to um, 
she wanted to help kind of getting rid of her mom's stuff. You know, somebody wanted to learn how to have fun. But those are <laughs> so. I don't know, there's all kind of range that people might come to talk to me. Just a little coaching. You know, how can I how can I shift this energy? How can I get out of this? What what, what can I do? So that's how that's that's how to contact me. It's pretty easy. Wonderful. So you have just been offered an aventure of. Um, being open to the moment of going to study with Anne Brannon, <laughs> also known as Pandora, which I highly recommend. Like I say, she's my teacher, and I uh, can't recommend her more highly. Uh, thank you so much for that fantastic interview. That and was fun. Thank you. Was that fun? So fun. Let's do it again. I love to talk. It's all stuff I love to talk about. Stuff you love to talk to stuff I'd love to hear you talk about. <laughs> so um, thank you so much, and hopefully we'll I think we'll definitely try to get you on the show again. Thank you, baby. That was fun, and it was um, it was a great gift to me. You were very you were very kind to me to have have me on your show. Well, you know I love you with my whole entire heart. Mm, back at you. Well. I feel like I've had a moment open before me. Uh, my adventure has begun just by having that adventure with Pandora and her interview. Everybody, if you are hearing the call to study with her, I highly recommend that you do. Don't miss that opportunity if that is, in fact, a shiny moment or a holy grail shining down to you. And remember to ask the question, who does the grail serve? 